Imagine this. You've been displaced from your home by armed groups. You move with your children to the only land you can afford. Perhaps you even cross borders. Then, in the middle of the night, your house is destroyed by a landslide. Who will come to your rescue? Your friends, your family, your government? In Makoa, they are finding their missing. But after days of desperate searching, there are no comforting reunions. Those who have survived pick through the remaining possessions. And who is accountable for ensuring that if there are things that can be done to avoid a disaster, they will be done? They're doing all they can to try to reclaim their homes from the mud. The people who settled here were already displaced after years of conflict. And now, once again, they have nowhere to go. Perhaps the state is unwilling or unable to provide early warning or emergency response systems because the government has other priorities like creating peace or engaging in civil war. Perhaps conflict is the reason that you get no supports to deal with the floods, earthquakes or cyclones that destroy your home year after year. Many international agencies like those on the news who swoop in to respond can't reach you because of that conflict, in which case you are the first responder you have to deal with the consequences alone. Colombia has endured 52 years of war and now its president says they must prepare for another battle, one against a changing climate. He believes warmer and wetter conditions are on the increase. This is the reality for many. In fact, it is the reality for most people vulnerable to disasters across the world. They're living in contexts also affected by violence and conflict. And we're going to explore why this isn't happening by chance. This is When Disasters and Conflict Collide, a three-part series exploring a new future for disaster risk reduction and how conflict is part of it. I'm Nkem Ifejika, a journalist who's worked across Africa and Europe, including in some of these countries at the crossroads of disaster and conflict. And I'm Katie Peters, a senior research fellow at the Overseas Development Institute. I've spent the last 10 years researching the connections between disasters and conflict. In this three-part series, we're exploring how conflict increases the risk of disasters on a regional, national and international level. And we ask why so little has been done to improve disaster risk reduction in these contexts. We'll tell you why disasters are rarely natural, why conflict has been the elephant in the diplomatic meeting room for decades, and ask what's being done to rewrite a better future for the affected people. And I've been speaking to diplomats, academics and aid workers from around the world to get their perspective on what it's like to try and get people working together. Loretta Heber-Durade from the United Nations. Populations living in conflict-affected areas probably need more than any other population group support to prevent disasters because of the heightened vulnerability and weakened coping capacities. Margareta Wallström, head of the Swedish Red Cross. One ambassador pleaded, she said, friends, um, let us remember that we are here because thousands of people are dying in our countries and stop this fruitless discussion, she said. Anoni Chadburn from Tear Fund. We know that communities never separate out their understanding of risk at all. These are all concepts and notions for for academics or programme people. But when it actually comes to being in a community uh, and facing everyday risk, those risks can come from so many very different sources. Now, let's start from the beginning, Katie, because many of us will have seen the news reports of 
Situations such as the Rohingya refugee crisis, where people become exposed to the risk of flooding when they flee across the border into Bangladesh to escape the conflict. But if we go beyond the headlines, how significant an issue is this globally? Well, we know that 58% of people that are killed by disasters actually live in the top 30 most fragile states, meaning the countries that are affected most by violence and conflict. And this is an underestimation because the impacts of disasters in countries affected by conflict often go unreported and underreported. So the numbers could actually be much higher. Now, is the assumption here that armed conflict and insecurity make areas inaccessible to response agencies and that governments might not have the systems in place to accurately track who's been affected and how severely they've been affected? Yes, exactly. And in some contexts, there might actually be political reasons why governments want to under or over-report disaster impacts. So, for example, they may want to downplay the impact of a major crisis on their watch, so to speak. Or they may overestimate in order to make the case for international funding. But the reality is that most of the time, there aren't accurate records to track who has been affected. But anecdotally, it's likely that numbers are much higher than are often officially reported. So we immediately have a situation where even understanding the basics of a specific disaster are quite difficult. And that's complicated further, I suppose, by the status and the capabilities of the governments in question. Yeah, so imagine a context that's affected by armed conflict or violence. Um, Myanmar, for example. Right, so you're in Myanmar. Now imagine that you're hit by a flood or a drought or a cyclone. Humanitarian response is going to be much more difficult. Now, there are a lot of governments and agencies who are working really hard to try and figure out how to do better at responding. But to me, that's just too little too late. I'm interested in whether we can get better at doing the things that we know help to reduce the impact of those hazards in advance, what we call disaster risk reduction, and those in the trade called DRR. Could you give us some examples of this? So governments can help write laws to protect people. And in most countries, there are disaster laws, and there are also disaster risk reduction strategies. Those strategies basically commit states to protecting their citizens. So they might say things like they'll have building codes or land use planning. They might invest in early warning systems. They might have health centres providing vaccinations. And they might also provide search and rescue services. Most countries have Red Cross and Red Crescent national societies, and they teach people to prepare for and respond to hazards. They might also build evacuation shelters, they might teach first aid, and they might also designate evacuation routes. Okay, thank you very much for that, Katie. And in our next episodes, we'll be exploring some of the plans that governments and agencies are putting in place to tackle hazards ranging from droughts to earthquakes. But before we go deeper into how we can work conflict into disaster risk reduction, we need to address a contentious issue, Katie, which is the natural in natural disasters. Now, if we think about the way that it's portrayed in the media, you'd be forgiven for thinking that disasters such as earthquakes, floods and droughts are so-called acts of God. But I know from personal experience of reporting in northern Nigeria that access to shrinking grazing lands has become a flashpoint for conflicts between nomadic cattle herders and farmers. Right, Katie, could you help us debunk this idea of natural disasters? Okay, so the whole idea of a natural disaster, it's a complete misnomer. Now, there are natural hazards, so things like earthquakes, volcanoes or cyclones. But even with climate change, the natural bit of that natural hazards is increasingly being questioned. But let me just explain something. So disasters are made up of three main elements. Firstly, you do have the natural hazard bit. 
But secondly, you have exposure, meaning whether or not people and buildings are actually in hazard-prone areas. And then thirdly, vulnerability. So this is basically the physical, social, economic or environmental factors which increase people's susceptibility to the impact of hazards. So we need to find ways to adapt this knowledge to contexts in which there's conflict because that's where the needs are greatest. Well, yes, we do. But this is also where we have a problem, because much of what we currently know assumes that we're working in relatively peaceful or stable contexts. And conflict introduces the so-called double vulnerability that DRR people often talk about. Here's Loretta Hiba-Girardet. She's the regional director of the UN DRR Asia Pacific, and she pretty much sums it up. It's incredibly challenging to convince people to spend time and resources preventing an event that may not happen when they're in the midst of dealing with a crisis that's already the impacting the lives of so many people in the community. But having said that, we know that populations living in conflict-affected areas, especially countries and communities that have been uh, experiencing conflict for long periods of time, they have uh, reached a high level of vulnerability already. They've seen their livelihoods reduced, they may be displaced, they may be living in camps, basic services may be limited. So their vulnerability levels are high, their capacities are often quite low, and when you add an additional hazard, uh, a hazardous event, their risk level is much higher than those living in stable environments. So really, I would say that what we see in conflict-affected areas is an increased vulnerability of the population, diminished capacity, weak governance or corrupt governance, a lack of sense of urgency, to prioritize disaster risk reduction. And here is where I think the international community has a responsibility to take into account all the risks that are being faced by a population, not just conflict-related. There's nothing worse than the scenario where a person who has survived a conflict goes on to lose their lives or their livelihoods in a wholly preventable disaster. Katie, could we expand a little bit on what... Loretta Hiba-Girardet was talking about. Just give us some examples. Yeah, so there's a whole range of different examples because conflict looks very different in very different contexts. So this could range from local level conflict between farmers and pastoralists, which could prevent people from accessing grazing land or water and exacerbate the impacts of drought. And this is what we see a lot, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. In other examples, and I certainly saw this in Darfur, you can have a context where armed conflict is actually destroying meteorological stations. And in Darfur I saw this, and it was preventing local scientists from collecting data on rainfall, and that made it even more difficult for them to predict weather and climate patterns. Countries at war may not have functioning governments or be willing or able to protect people, Or governments emerging from conflict might have other priorities, such as establishing peace or security or order. In other examples, we might see formal economies in conflict or post-conflict countries that may have actually been stifled by conflict, meaning that the government doesn't have the capacity to collect revenue, which it needs to then reinvest in infrastructure. So, for example, to protect people from monsoons or from flooding. Um, Katie, whenever I've reported from many of these countries and you have debated with people, they often talk about corruption, in a sense, almost being the worst of all their problems. So for many countries, corruption is undoubtedly a problem. There's no point in denying that. 
but it's particularly a problem where it diverts resources away from public services. So where you have a country where there are less civil servants, you're less likely to have building regulations enforced. You're less likely to have resources available to provide health centres with the staff they need to be able to carry out vaccination programmes. You also might get a situation where you do have disaster laws and regulations that look great on paper. But actually, if you don't have staff to enforce those, you may have people that are living in increasingly unsafe environments. And that's particularly the case in a number of rapidly growing cities in developing countries. And then there's a whole suite of additional issues that are affecting women and children specifically. For example, Colette Benerjee told me about the situation in Chad, where conflict is increasing women's risk of rape and the curfews and movement restrictions that are in place are limiting their ability to find food and water and firewood. You're listening to When Disasters and Conflict Collide from the Overseas Development Institute, where we're exploring a new future for disaster risk reduction and how conflict is part of it. If you'd like to learn more about the ODI's research into disaster risk reduction and conflict, visit www.odi.org. And you can read more about the work we've conducted in Afghanistan, Lebanon, Chad and Colombia. Now, Katie, you've been working in this field for over 10 years. And in 2015, you had a rare opportunity, which was to get governments to commit to taking action on DRR through an international agreement, which is the Sendai framework. Could you give us some context of this? So we do have this international agreement on disaster risk reduction. And as you say, governments, all governments, in fact, have signed up to protecting their citizens to disaster risk. And they've committed to achieving seven global goals by 2030. As you say, this is the Sendai framework. It's a 15-year agreement by all countries to, and I quote here, to prevent new and reduce existing disaster risk through the implementation of integrated and inclusive economic, structural, legal, social, health, cultural, education, environmental, technological, political, institutional measures that prevent and reduce hazard exposure and vulnerability to disasters, increase preparedness for response and recovery, and thus strengthen resilience. And in English, it means... (laughs) So it basically means that we can and should do everything possible to try and prevent disasters from happening in the first place or to reduce their impact of natural hazards when they do happen. Now, it really shouldn't be underestimated that even having this international framework, it's a major achievement. But even though over the last few decades we've learned more and more about how we can reduce the impact of hazards... Not all of that knowledge is reflected in the framework. It's not a technical document. It's the outcome of a political negotiation. Now, there are four people in my house and we can never agree on what to eat or what to watch for an evening film. So I can't imagine that having 200 countries needing to reach a consensus for this framework was easy. It must have been difficult. You were uh, there. My goodness, it was exceptionally difficult. Um, but I have to say, I mean, there was a lot of preparations that went into it. And, you know, the negotiations, they were relatively straightforward. That was until the topic of conflict came up in those discussions. Now, I want to introduce you to Margrethe Wallström. She was the Special Representative of the United Nations Secretary General for Disaster Risk Reduction during the Sendai negotiations. Now, she explains how many countries, including those from Scandinavia and Africa, but also the UK, they were, with very good intentions, committed to discussing conflict. When, when we discussed Sendai, many of the countries that actually pushed very hard for the inclusion of conflict 
they did it, I would say, based on their experience of crisis, conflict and disasters. But they were the classical donor countries, the Western countries. And uh, I think that was part of what created this sense of unease, since many of the countries that actually live in conflict and increasing disasters are countries that are also traditionally needing and, and receiving much humanitarian assistance uh, for conflict situations. So you can start to see why the inclusion of conflict really began to muddy the waters. Indeed, I, I see the irony, because while you could argue that the causes of disasters might be deeply political. But the point of the response is relatively neutral and with a very clear goal, which is to save as many lives as possible. But disaster risk reduction is about preventing and reducing the causes of disasters. And conflict, straight away, makes the conversation political. And and that's a bit of a problem. Absolutely. And here's Margareta again, explaining why some governments were resistant to the inclusion of conflict within the Sendai framework negotiations. I think that they were not necessarily against the wording, they were against the concept of conflict being included uh, because they saw this as you know, creating a risk that the intervention by states into other states um, would add another, this would be add, having another argument for future types of intervention. We've seen it in Kosovo in the 90s. We saw it in Libya, etc. That's the kind of perspective they wanted to um, not to create um, another reason for it. They would probably have agreed it if it had been um, o- only left to uh, an international conflict, global conflict. So, in a way, what I would say, the reason why it wasn't included as such, with that very specific mentioning, had nothing to do with the disaster or the conflict or the concept of the trigger itself. It only had to, well, only, I shouldn't say only, it had to do with uh, global issues of a very different nature. And just to give you an idea about how difficult these discussions were, here's Banak Joshua Dual, who represented South Sudan at those negotiations. The African Union positions was very clear that one of the drivers of a slow uh, economic prosperity in the continent, one of the causes is conflict. And the conflict has, uh, has a relative or a strong link with the drivers of poverty in the, in the, in the region. So we, we, we stood very firm and we advocated for that the conflict should be part of the Sunday framework as, as one of the, uh, one of the targets. That was the position of South Sudan. So listen to those two people. It appears that opinions were very polarised. And in the end, after days and hours of negotiations, actually conflict was completely left out of the Sendai framework, Katie. Yep, unfortunately, that's right. So this was a once-in-a-15-year opportunity. Many governments, such as South Sudan, as you heard there, were calling for conflict to be included. How did it feel to watch that just disappear? 
Honestly, I mean, it was devastating. So imagine, I mean, I'm sure you've seen on TV the big sort of UN General Assembly discussion. So imagine that. Imagine a giant hall where you have every country represented. They're all looking up at a big screen where you have the draft text. Now, very early in the morning, and it was literally about one or two in the morning, on the last day of negotiations, I remember sitting and watching as the last remaining reference to conflict were removed from that draft text. I can't even begin to tell you how deeply frustrating it was because it didn't reflect the lived experience of many people who suffer from this idea of double vulnerability that we've been talking about, disasters and conflict. But we're now at a point where the Sendai framework actually does exist and it will come up for review in 2030. So governments now have the job of implementing it. So how do you go about doing that where conflict is a factor? So this is the interesting part. So there is virtually no guidance, no support, no special funding measures to actually help governments and agencies to achieve disaster risk reduction in contexts of conflict. And that's really where my interest in this whole area has come from, because on paper, very little has been done. But when you delve a bit deeper, as we did in our research, we find that there are governments, agencies and communities adapting traditional DRR approaches. So those approaches that are designed for relatively peaceful and stable settings. And they're adapting them to their contexts, which may be places that are affected by violence or armed conflict. But thinking is changing. Here's Dr. Aisha Siddiqui, a leading academic in disaster risk reduction. I was quite critical of the fact that trying to keep the politics out of disasters has been the politics of of, of disasters for so long that we try and we deal with this in a very technocratic, uh, apolitical, um, depoliticized way. And we just think of uh, what are the interventions around infrastructure and technology and um, various forms of um, quote-unquote development that, 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 that we put in place without really paying any attention to what are the local dynamics of, of, of politics, of conflict, of insurgency, of all of those factors. And so if we don't begin to, to uh, explore, understand, look at what are the ways that the politics can become part of the solution rather than always looking at it as a problem and trying to sideline it and ignoring it altogether, I think we'd have a much better chance of success. So tell me if I've got this right. Even though it wasn't included in the text, countries can do what they want as individual nations, right? Well, yeah. I mean, what's in the international framework isn't necessarily what's reflected at the national level. So in countries like Lebanon, actually the government does consider disasters and conflict together. I spoke to Zahi Shaheen. He works at the Disaster Risk Management Unit at the Prime Minister's Office in Lebanon. And he told me why they consider disasters and conflict under the same strategy. Prevention, preparedness, uh, response and recovery for man-made and uh, natural. It's the Mm. same. You shouldn't have two entities working on two separate uh, portfolios where you have the same goals, you have the same uh, results uh, Mm. you're looking forward to achieve. So does that mean that having disasters and conflicts under one strategy mean that DRR is better adapted to contexts where there might be violence or armed conflict? Well, no, not necessarily, but that's definitely one for the next episode.
And that's actually a good place to wrap up this episode, because in our next episode, we'll be exploring what is it about conflict that makes people more vulnerable to natural hazards? And can we address those vulnerabilities in ways that not only help people deal with the future disaster impact, but also contribute to peace? Or is that a step too far? Well, we'll be looking in more detail at our research in Chad, Colombia, Afghanistan and Lebanon to find the challenges, commonalities and reasons to be hopeful about the future of disaster risk reduction. This podcast series is part of the project When Disasters and Conflict Collide, Uncovering the Truth by the Overseas Development Institute in cooperation with GIZ on behalf of the German Federal Ministry of Economic Cooperation and Development. It is produced by Freya Hellier for Loftus Media. Find out more at odi.org and thanks for listening. Thank you.